I begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today and pay my respects to their elders past and present and emerging. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I'd like to welcome everyone to the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australia podcast series, otherwise known as the TOGA podcast series. I am Associate Professor Prunella Blinman, and I'm a medical oncologist and head of department at Concord Hospital in Sydney, and also a clinical associate professor at the University of Sydney. In this podcast on Winter National Women's Day, we are celebrating female leadership in medical research. We use the terms female and women today because it is International Women's Day, but we really hope that the podcast appeals to all gender identities because all the panelists, as well as Toga, embrace diversity, equity and inclusion, and Toga has an excellent track record of doing so. I'd like to introduce my fellow panellists, and I thank them in advance for participating in the podcast today. First up, we have Assistant Professor Nargis Flores, who is the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, joining us all the way from Boston. Welcome, Nargis. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Thank you. We also have Professor Lorraine Chantrell, medical oncologist and head of department in Wollongong and Shoalhaven local health districts in New South Wales, Australia. She's also the director of cancer services of the local health district and chair of the board of the Australian Gastrointestinal Cancer Trials Group. She also wants me to point out that she didn't do things in the normal order like everyone else. She's also a pancreas cancer researcher interested in new treatments for pancreas cancer and a single mother of three. Welcome, Lorraine. Thank you. Great to be here. And last but not least, we have Dr. Rebecca Tay, who is a full-time medical oncologist in Hobart, Tasmania, in Australia. Can I welcome you, Rebecca? And I point out that Rebecca is our early career oncologist today. She's anxious, but extremely welcome. And we're really pleased to have her here today. Oh, thanks, Prunella. So first up, I'm just going to start by asking all of our panellists to give a quick summary of where you're at in your research career to set the scene for everyone listening today. So in particular, I, I really want to know the where you do your research and what kind of research you do. So maybe we'll start with Nargist. I should also point out that from now on, it's first names only. We'll get rid of those titles. We've done the titles for the day. Thank you, Prunella. So as you say, I'm an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and a medical, as a medical oncologist. So I have a particular focus on younger women with lung cancer. And this includes from delays in diagnosis, which many of these younger women face to response and tolerability to therapy, as well as the survivorship experience, which tends to differ compared to older adults. And the focus of this is because the incidence of lung cancer in younger women here in the United States, uh, some parts of West Europe and Brazil continues to increase every year despite of tobacco use. So I focus on that and along that, I also focus on cancer health disparities and discrimination in medicine as a whole. And three and a half years out of fellowship. So, and no mid-career, but I know early career. So I think right now I'm in limbo career <laughs> uh, because I haven't reached, I like no early career, but no mid-career. So that's where I am right now. And I'm also trying to find 
why it makes me wholesome uh, to keep doing what we do. It's extremely emotional tolling and it's a lot of work. So if I just find my career stage right now, I'm trying to find what as a whole makes me a wholesome physician, researcher, and teacher. Yeah, great. Well, those themes are so relevant today, Nardis, and indeed, that's why you've been invited on the podcast today. We might move on to Lorraine. You might be saying something different to Nardis. Can you tell us about your research career, Lorraine? Yeah, so as I intimated before, my research career was kind of done in a, a bit of a strange order, and I've actually been working in scientific research since 1989 when I was involved in some early genomics research when PCR was a new thing. And I was really pleased to be able to put that into practice much later after I'd completed physician's training in a PhD in pancreas cancer. So I guess I'm a late career researcher, but it doesn't feel like it in terms of my knowledge of research and how much we've achieved in pancreas cancer because it hasn't really been enough. So I feel that we're very early in the research trajectory for something like pancreas cancer and I'm very in awe of the great advances that have been made in lung cancer. And if only we could repeat that sort of process in poor prognosis cancers like pancreas cancer, it would be fabulous. Uh, But there are a whole lot of challenges that you're all probably aware of that have really slowed us down in pancreas cancer. So I'm very pleased to be able to work across some disciplines. So I think that makes a big difference. And I'm also very committed to encouraging young people to join oncology and to do research and to support them doing that. And part of what I hope we talk about today is ways that we can support younger people to do research alongside their clinical careers. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Serene. There's so much to cover today. I feel like we're going to run out of time, but I hope we cover that stuff too. I also forgot that you were a scientist before you were a medical oncologist. Indeed, I met you so long ago. The timeline is so blurry. Many people won't know, but Lorraine is actually the first person I met in oncology. We go back a long way. 2000, I think it was. I was a medical student. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, Prunella was a medical student while I was a training registrar in Broken Hill in uh, the far west of New South Wales, about 1,300 kilometres west of Sydney. So a pretty amazing place to work uh, and amazing, amazing place to be a student. And, and a weird place to meet, indeed. But anyway. But it must be so nice, Lorraine, to see Prunella now as a medical oncologist, as an associate professor. Absolutely. Uh, it is amazing. And it's so wonderful to see great people do wonderful things and being able to encourage people and enable them, be friends with them along the way and make sure that everyone knows how much fun it is doing research in in cancer medicine. So Rebecca, can you give us a rundown of where you're at in your research career? Sure. So I am a current staff specialist at Royal Hobart Hospital. I took up this position after a two-year clinical research fellowship in thoracic cancers at the Christie in Manchester. And so currently my research involvement is really predominantly in the clinical trial space as an investigator locally. I think my research is really informed by the patients I see every day. And I'm really passionate about having my patients and regional patients from Australia represented in clinical trials and having opportunities for them to participate in clinical studies. I suppose in the three years that I've consulted, sort of my research priorities are currently 
setting up a clinical quality registry um, examining gaps in cancer care in regional Australia. So we've just pushed the start button on that last week after a lot of discussions and negotiations. So I'm really looking forward to you know seeing how that evolves. It's taken two years to get to this point, so progress can sometimes feel slow. But I think you have to you know celebrate these little milestones along the way. Rebecca, so great to have you here today. Can I? Just make clear that we all have a lot to learn from each other, no matter where you are in your career. I learn things from junior oncologists every day and it keeps me fresh (laughs) and on my toes and reminds me always, I always think that I was in your shoes once. But can I ask if you were actually listening to all of us talking today, as an early career oncologist with an interest in research, what is it that you would hope to hear? What would be helpful And what in particular would you like to know about leadership in research? I'd love to hear leadership look like to you. How do you role model that on a daily basis? Nadis. Yes. Do you want to respond to (laughs) us? So for me, successful leadership means equal opportunities to all members of the team, regardless of their gender, sexual orientation, background, or preference or research. Successful leadership also means listening. I enjoy listening to the members of my lab. My lab is quite large. And I know that when a member of the lab comes to bring an issue to me, they have the courage and they probably thought about this meeting for days. So I take that as a privilege instead of seeing that as a complaint. So I think for me, successful leadership is equal opportunities and listening, I think, is the first step and validating their concerns. And I promise myself that as a leader, I would never say, well, back in the day, things were harder because that doesn't enrich the conversation. That doesn't, does anything but invalidate concerns. So every time I'm in a meeting, I'm like, don't say it, don't say it. Back in the day, things were harder because that won't help. Thank you. I love that. So um, I, I love your themes now, just, just the equity, embracing diversity and the levelling of leadership, making it open and accessible and not dwelling on our own experiences, but rather using those to make things better for people going forward. So Lorraine, I think we heard a little bit about your research story. Do you want to comment on um, Rebecca's question about what you think good leadership looks like? Well, I really think good leadership looks like what the succession planning is from that leadership. I think uh, good leaders are always looking for the next leaders and trying to enable those people to get the skills that they need to do that. And I'm hoping that probably hear a little bit later about the AGITG experience in GI cancer trials in Australia. I think uh, in the past, we've perhaps not done so well in succession planning, but I believe that we are doing better now. We really need to encourage usually younger people, but not always younger, uh, but other people to take some of those leadership roles. A lot of the time, I think getting to those roles, Rebecca, involves saying yes to quite a few things at the beginning and then working out what really suits you and honing into that thing later. I think you do have to perhaps sign up to more than more than you'd like to to begin with in order to work out what suits you best. Thanks, Serene. Rebecca, I think you're on notice because, so, you know, what you are the future, you are representing future leaders today. 
And I should comment, when I was having a chat to Rebecca about the podcast yesterday, continuing on with those themes, I was saying the idea is to get you involved now because you're going to be chairing exactly this podcast in about 10 years from now. So work out how you're going to get from where you are to how you're going to chair the podcast, encouraging the next generation of leaders in research. So hopefully, I no doubt you're embracing those wise words from Lorraine and Nargis. We might move on. So Nargis, I think the first time that I really became aware of who you are was no doubt with regards to your study on evaluating unconscious bias, speaker introductions at an international oncology conference. And just to summarize the findings, which I took from the abstract, it's when introduced by men, female speakers at ASCO were less likely to receive a professional address and more likely to be introduced by first name only compared with their male peers. It's funny because my PH supervisor, Martin Stocker, always said and still says that successful research is asking the right questions at the right time. And I think you really nailed it with that study. Super timely and totally relevant to the environment um, and the landscape at that time. Can you explain what that study meant for you both personally and professionally? So I came out with this study when I was a second year fellow at Mayo Clinic. I was on Tuesday, Ask Tuesdays, you know, most people go uh, before that, but I stay. And I noticed that a very senior full professor was introduced by her first name, but everybody else who was less senior was introduced by the professional title by the speaker. So I did a Twitter poll. I think I got 34 responses, but what it meant to me is the comments that came and is a lot of women were sharing that happened to them. So I sit down and say, if this is happening, why well, we haven't changed? And the answer was data. I believe in advocacy through data. So I spent a good amount of time designing this study. We have blind reviewers. We have re-reviewers. 20% of the sample was re-randomized to review the videos again. And I spent a lot of time in the design because I knew it was a reality, but I needed to effectively systematically prove it because advocacy through data works. So for the first time in my life, I was hoping that the study was negative because what many women had shared with me, then it was not true or it wasn't proven, but it was very positive. And then what it meant to me was two things. First, that this work matter because we are 52% of the general population, but there are open spaces for us in oncology but they're not really, right? So we are being recruited, but no included. And that's what mattered to me. And the second thing, Prunella, I have to mention, it also made me grow because when the abstract was shared in social media, I never have faced social media attacks until that day. And that remind me that doesn't matter how many titles or the medical community, we think we're better, we're not. So I was bullied online. I was harassed online after a study that was conducted and emails, direct messages continue even after the paper was published at JCO and featured in the cover of the journal. And right now the paper is in the 5% metrics for all history of JCO. But there was two lessons. One, no, everybody's willing to learn and make change to include everyone. And second is that we are making the space with or without our consent. And now the study has been 
redone in around 11 societies, six different languages. And I, I hope that one day somebody says this study is not relevant anymore, because then that means the goal was fulfilled. That is that as a woman, I don't get stripped of my title just because of my gender. Yeah, amazing the impact that seemingly small study had. Rebecca, if you're wondering what impact in research means, I think you just had a pretty clear explanation from Nargis. And Nargis, I remember about a month later, we have our annual meeting for our professional society, the Medical Oncology Group of Australia, which I was chair of at the time. And I immediately took the results of the abstract and said, hey, this is what we need to do. This is how we're going to run this meeting. We're going to do the same thing for everyone. Do you know what I mean? And it was amazing just the flow on from that. And now, and again, the impact that it's had. And again, it's about asking the right questions at the right time. So Lorraine, you treat people with lung cancer, but also sit in the gastrointestinal cancer world with leadership roles and a research focus on pancreas cancer. It's so great to be able to have both perspectives. And my question for you, does tumor type matter? Yeah, I suppose I can't talk so clearly about lung cancer and I'd be happy to hear what Rebecca and yourself and Najaf say. But in the GI space, we've it's been very male dominated, I think, for a long time. And we are making inroads and AGITG in Australia is trying um, positive moves to make it more equal. And some of the things that you were referring to with the MOGA meeting that you chaired shortly after Naja's paper was published, we've also tried to recapitulate in AGITG by having any time we have sessions, we have co-chairs uh, that are gender balanced where we can. We have tried to make sure that our committees are gender balanced and that we have as PIs on our clinical trials now a gender balance, which we have been very poor at in the past. We There was a paper actually published uh, by Professor Segalov a couple of years ago, which demonstrated that uh, GI cancer trials in Australia and New Zealand were poorly headed by women. In fact, I think women were only PIs about a third of the time. And we're really trying to make changes through not not a mandate, I, I wouldn't call it a mandate, but by strong encouragement that whenever a clinical trial is implemented, that it have co-PIs and that one of those PIs be female if possible. So we haven't, we haven't mandated it, but I think we've made it encouraged and I'm, we're hoping that that will address the imbalance. And what about your experience, though, in terms of leadership and research? In the GI world. Yeah, but I've had ne we've never had any opposition from anyone. So when we made these changes, everyone, men, women, everyone, we're all really pleased to have them. So we haven't actually encountered any opposition. I think the problem was that in the past we were passive about it. So I do think we need to be a bit more active, but I'm very pleased to say that we've had no objection to it from anyone. Yeah, great for AGITG and like other tumor types too having a female in charge is actually really helpful and you also need those male champions and it's unfortunate that it quite it needs that affirmative action doesn't it like it, it requires effort it just doesn't happen otherwise and I, I'm sure not just will agree on that I think people are embracing it which I think is a really positive thing okay Rebecca changing tune here you've been overseas and completed your clinical research fellowship in lung cancer which is something many of us haven't done, me included. 
what was that like? And would you recommend it to your peers? And even more important, I think, because you're at the stage where you can do this, can you help connect people wanting to follow your path and make things happen? Sure. So I would say my research fellowship was absolutely pivotal in where I've ended up in my career trajectory to this stage. It was an amazing opportunity. I gained a huge amount of clinical experience. It was a high volume cancer centre. We had our Friday morning clinic was dedicated to treating only stage three lung cancer. We had a separate thymoma clinic. It was quite incredible to have mentorship and supervision, you know, to, uh, to gain this clinical experience. But also being a cancer centre and having mentors to help nurture a research skill set have been really helpful that I've been able to come back home and apply some of this into my consultant job and where I currently practice. So absolutely, I would be more than happy if anyone wants to email or call me to discuss an experience. We have quite a number of fellows around Australia who've gone not only to the UK, but to the US, Canada, other places in Europe. So, you know, it's really about fostering connections and networks. And I've never really found anybody to be unhelpful in discussing their experience. So absolutely, give me an email. It's so good that you're now in that position to be able to do that because that's how things happen, right? Everyone is helping each other and that's a way that you can help registrars who might be considering a fellowship overseas, someone to reach out to. So now just, we really met on social media back when Twitter was really Twitter, the old Twitter, and then met up face-to-face in Barcelona in 2019 and that was the most amazing World Lung Conference. (laughs) Pre-COVID, when times were different, And also, if you remember, the hashtag IRL was a real thing back then because people were just meeting in real life, whereas I haven't seen anyone in real life since about that conference, and that's how times have changed. Can I say that? I mean, social media can be an important part of being a researcher, and you have referred to that already. So what advice do you have for early career oncologists and researchers wanting to dip their toe into social media in 2023? I think we should see social media as a professional tool because that's what it is. I think we are past the whole perception that social media is a waste of time. It is not. I have the opportunity to connect with you, Prunella, and so many people. I have conducted studies through social media that otherwise would not be possible. So I'm going to do one quick example in this that we did the OLA COVID study, which is to evaluate the experience of oncologists in Latin America with COVID. Because most studies were done in the U.S., Asia, and West Europe. But the unique needs of the Latin American oncologists were not described. We did the majority of the recruitment through social media. And we interviewed close to a thousand oncologists from Mexico to Tierra del Fuego, which is the Patagonia and Argentina. So that was through social media. There are throwbacks to everything. There are throwbacks to Western blots, right? There are are problems about randomized clinical trials. So there's also problems conducting, no problems, limitations conducting research with social media. My recommendation to anyone with social media is one, understand it as a tool and do not compare your insights with other people's outsides. Because that's the number one mistake I see trainees do. Oh, but this medical student is so-and-so. You don't know. That's their outside. That's their social media phase. You know the struggle. So don't compare your inside with them. And the second thing, use it as a tool. What is a tool? Something that you use for a purpose for limited time. 
So I'm very smart about my social media use. I use TweetDeck. It means I schedule the tweets ahead of time. I have limits in my phone for social media. And I do cross-posting. So cross-posting is you post it in Twitter and it posts in Instagram. I don't have Facebook. So I do cross-posting. So time limit, a purpose. Why are you in social media for? If you're through scrolling, then it's not a tool. It's entertainment, right? And that's what TikTok is to me. I like cat videos. And allegedly now I like capybaras. But the point is that use it as a tool. Limited time, purpose, connect with other people. And I think for people in Australia, it's very important because geographically you are apart from a lot of us. So social media can be that tool, but it needs to be used smartly. Not to like spend, I don't never spend more than 30 minutes scrolling through Twitter. And people think I'm in Twitter all the time. No. What you're here for, get it done and go back to writing your manuscript. Those are my recommendations. Yeah, great. Great advice. It is different now. I think in the early days of Twitter, as you say, it was really important. Someone like me who never went overseas to develop an international network, particularly within the lung cancer field, who was so open to that. That was actually really important. I really feel like that was a really positive thing for me. And I would say my advice to add to yours now just would be just to do it slowly. You need to develop your own style and your own profile. You need to get used to and be comfortable with posting and also be brave to say what you think, but to say that in a way that will be well-received. So I agree, but it's not for everyone, right? It's not essential. I think you do it if you feel like it's the right thing for you. Yeah, and I take breaks from social media too. Like I was writing a very large AACR gram. You can see there's a two-week gap in my tweet post. Yeah. I was focused on things. It is a tool. Yeah. So I use it. Like, let's use like a hammer. When do you use a hammer? When you need it, right? You're not like walking around with a hammer in your <laughs> hand, walking on the streets, most people. But that's what a social media is. You need a tool. You use it to put that nail and then you go back to what you need to do. Can I say I never use a hammer? Well, any other tool. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we, we're getting towards the end, so we might wrap up with a final question. Rebecca, there's hope, right? We've come a long way, but there's a lot of work to be done. How can female leaders in oncology research help people like you? What aspects of mentoring and sponsorship have helped you? And then I'll ask Lorraine and just for comments on that. I hadn't thought about the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. So to me, like a mentor is someone, you know, providing guidance, maybe career advice, someone who's a sounding board often maybe older and more experienced, but not necessarily. But sponsorship, I think, is a a step above that. You know, it's someone who's a leader, who's in a position, who can really advocate for you, who can provide opportunities. And to have more women in that space of leadership who are able to sponsor future leaders, I think it's that succession planning that Lorraine alluded to before. And so certainly I've, you know, benefited fitted enormously from mentorship and sponsorship. And I think that's to me at this early phase of my career. And it's sort of spurred me to create opportunities for trainees as well. It's a big task, isn't it? But there's absolutely hope. And I'm very hopeful that TOGA and the lung cancer community in Australia internationally are leading the way for this. Yeah, great. Yeah, so good. I mean, having you here today is a form of mentorship and sponsorship, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So Lorraine, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, so I think where I've helped people the most is to encourage them to 
think outside the square. And if they want something that they can't see, uh, to say, well, why don't you go and talk to so-and-so? And they might be able to make that happen for you. Like, why don't you create your own dream research project and find somewhere you can do that rather than looking through a menu of research projects or when it comes to jobs rather than wait for the job advertisement to come out in the paper or on social media or, or online go to the place you want to work and say this is what I'm really interested in is there any chance that you could find a job for me doing this the other thing that I've done is encourage women who um, want to work part-time for example and there has been a lot of stigma attached to part-time work which we do need to completely disrupt. I had one young woman say oh, I'd like to do medical oncology but it's really hard because I can can only do it part-time. I said to her don't let anyone tell you you can't do it part-time. There are ways of doing it just need to talk to people just tell them what you need and what you want and I'm sure it can happen. So yeah breaking down barriers is important. Thank you. Thanks, Lorraine. And closing comments, not just on mentorship. I think the number one thing is I told my mentees that I cannot be everything for them. And I connect them with other people. Because if they're doing a very complex statistical analysis, that's not me, right? I'm here to guide them, but also to connect them. And finally, I in the last three years of mentorship, I have learned that they don't have to be a carbon copy of me. <laughs> I'm part of their journey and not their journey. So that's how I now I have two mentees that are cardiology fellows and we're doing cardio-oncology, but they do their EKG thing. And I support them through that. They don't have to do what I do. They have to do what fills their cup because at the end, they're the ones working late nights, not me. You're right. Great advice. I must say that, the further along I get in my career, mentorship and sponsorship is something that fills my cup and that's something I'm happy to devote a lot of the time that I don't have to because I get so much out of it myself. And I'm really, I mean, it's part of the reason why I agreed to doing the podcast today because I really like the themes and I really like the things that we were going to talk about. So in saying that, I'm going to wrap up the podcast for today. I'd like to thank the audience for listening to the toga podcast today i'd like to absolutely thank all three panelists for your insights and comments and for turning up today i'd certainly encourage everyone to celebrate international women's day and all the wonderful women and indeed everyone involved in celebrating the cause of women in oncology and research and medicine and beyond Please know that the podcast will be available wherever you listen to your podcasts and it will be released later today. So thank you again. Enjoy your day.